This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. We love the culture. We love film and television and music. And one of our favorite TV shows, along with Shark Tank, is Judge Judy. You are about to enter the courtroom of Judge Judith Scheindlin. The people are real. The cases are real. The rulings are final. This is Judge Judy. (laughs) And this case, well, we love taking the best ones of the week because you have jobs and you're not home more than likely when this airs. But this one involved, well, a deadbeat dad and a credit card. All parties in the matter of Stang versus DeJana. Step forward, please. Bonnie Stang is suing her ex-boyfriend, Thomas DeJana, for credit card charges in excess of $11,000. Ouch. Oh, man, here's Judge Judy unpacking the case. Ms. Stang, it is your claim that Mr. DeJana owes you some money. Yes. Owes you some money because he used your credit card. Yes. You were given him permission to use your credit card with the understanding that he was going to take care of the bills from the credit card and use it only for emergencies. Mr. DeJana racked up thousands of dollars of expenses on the credit card, and you want that money back. Yes, Your Honor. In addition, claim he owes you some money for rent because he rented a condo of yours. All of that is well in excess of this court's limit of $5,000. So we'll get into the rent if only if we have to. Let's deal with the credit card. Okay? Okay. Poor Mr. DeJana. It's coming. But what's his side of the story? Where and when did you meet Miss Stang? I met Miss Stang on an internet dating site. So you were looking for a date? I was looking for some companionship. Yes, ma'am. How old are you? 38. Ever been married? Yes, I have. How many times? Once. Do you have children? Yes, I do, Your Honor. How many? One. How old? She's a nine-year-old daughter. And in what state does she live? New York. And where do you live? On San Diego. You live very far away from your child. Yes, I do. How come? Um, during... Um is not an answer. Excuse me? Um is not an answer. <laughs> my my uh, apologies, Your Honor. How often do you see your daughter? Uh, three or four times a year. You pay child support, Mr. Tichana? Yes, I do. How much? Uh, $500 a month. Boy, she doesn't like him already. Um is not an answer. And it's not. Judge Judy moves in on the story behind the story of those credit card expenses. Now, Mr. Tijana, when did Miss Stang give you a credit card? <laughs> Just before I went to New York for Christmas. And what did you tell her when she gave you the credit card? I told her, thank you very much for helping me out in this time of my need. Why were you in need, sir? I went on disability October 26th. What is the nature of your disability? I had, I had a torn up shoulder. From what? Playing baseball. What kind of work were you doing? I'm an industrial electrician. Okay. Okay, okay. She presses him on this so-called disability. Now, I want you to tell me, Mr. Jujana, because it was something that was very interesting to me. You couldn't work because of a torn shoulder? I have no mobility above 180 degrees. Aren't there other jobs that you could find, sir, that would permit you to work and not lift your arms up all the way up here? Uh, I'm an industrial electrician, and that entails a lot of heavy lifting above my head, screwing in pipes, No, 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 listen wires. to what I said, listen to what I said, uh, ma'am, Mr. Ma'am, I'm a Gijana. trained electrician, that's what when, I do. Listen to what I said to you, sir. When you have a nine-year-old child, yes. you pick up cans. You don't have to lift anything above your head in order to pay your child oh, support. I understand that. I'm glad you understand that. I just want you to understand that. I know where we're coming from. But also- now, what were you doing skiing in Utah? <laughs> and this is why this is still the best-rated television show during the day and why Judge Judy is the highest-paid lady and man in all of television. And why were you skiing in Utah? 
Well, where did that come from? Okay, so he was skiing in Utah. Let's follow Judge Judy down this slope. I wasn't skiing, ma'am. I drove my friends there in my truck. And you drove your friends in your truck yes, to Utah. So? The plan all along was for me to drive there with several of the individuals going on the trip and to haul all of the ski equipment and other snow equipment in my trailer yeah. so that people didn't have to deal with it. Get a airport. job driving a cab <laughs> if you could drive cross-country for a ski vacation, sir, and haul all their skis. Get behind the wheel of a cab and drive a taxi. Drive a limousine service. That's not my choice drive... of occupation. Oh, well, I want to tell you something. I want to tell you something. I don't you want to be, I'm, I'm, hey, I'm speaking, you're not. You want to be a bum on your own time, that's fine. You have a nine-year-old child, forget her. You have a nine-year-old child. I wouldn't give you one iota of relief from your back child support, not one. And I know the judges in New York City, sir. That's my hometown. And they're not going to do it either. They're not going to give you one break, especially after I send them this tape. You bet. And by the way, this is what really ticks Americans off. Guys like this, really, really freeloaders like this, just stealing our money. Because he doesn't want to do a certain kind of job, but the one kind of job that he can no longer do. Ridiculous. Judge Judy now turns to that girlfriend. Because boy... Something tells me he's gonna, she's going to come down on her, too, for giving this bum her credit card. Now, how much does he owe you on the credit card? $11,000. Can I see some of the purchases that he made, please? Which happened over six weeks, most of which were cash withdrawals. Listen, how old are you? Too old for this, 44 years old. Let me tell you something. Yes, ma'am. I could tell that he was a bum in five minutes. How does it take you six weeks to figure out that this guy hasn't been able to get his life straight? I have faith in mankind, which has now been no, destroyed. No, you cannot have faith in mankind. Your, your head wasn't ruling you. Thank you. You're right, Your Honor. You're absolutely right. He played on my I mean, I don't even see what his attraction is. He doesn't it's have any. Different I, if he, you know, Your Honor, he... Looked like Tom Cruise. Yes. Oh <laughs> Judgment for the plaintiff in the amount of $5,000. Get him out of here. Get him out of here. I agree. Get him off this air. And by the way, we know guys like this. One of the things we're going to do in this show starting in the fall is we're going to start to look into some of these disability scams. Because guys like this have no right to take money from us. He could be a telephone operator. He could drive a cab. There is a hundred other jobs he can do. I'm trained to be an electrician. That's all I can do. What a load of nonsense. A load of nonsense. Get another job. Now, what were you doing skiing in Utah? Well said, Judge Judy. And he never really gave... I mean, he's making it seem like he drove all those people out there and didn't ski himself. I say you go on his Facebook page, something tells me there'll be pictures of him sliding down a slope in Utah. What a jerk. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. This is why we love Judge Judy. And we bring it to you because sometimes you can't make it. More after these messages. It's a sense. What you need, it's a I'm a really smart lady. Sometimes I write a little song so you don't forget it. Sometimes I write a little song to remember the lyrics. I go, what is it? American stories where we love 
Great stories about music, sports, love, death, and business. One of our favorite subjects is generosity and the generous things Americans do for each other and the world. Which brings us to our Sweet Charity Series with our partners, the Philanthropy Roundtable. The nation's leader in fostering excellence and generosity, protecting philanthropic freedom, and assisting givers in achieving their goals. And the host of the series is none other than Carl Zinsmeister, their head of publications. And Carl is the author of The Almanac of American Philanthropy. And here is this week's story. Take it away, Carl. Last week, I told you the story of some unconventional arts philanthropy carried out by two donors who plucked some of Louis Comfort Tiffany's masterpieces literally from the ashes of a fire and then gave them a fitting home, allowing Americans to enjoy beautiful works that the art establishment had left behind. This week, I'm back with an even more contrarian tale of art philanthropy. If I asked you what the world's best attended art event is, I suspect most of you would guess something at the Louvre in Paris, or the British Museum, or maybe the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York. But none of those are right. What if I said that the art show attracting more people than any other in the world, and by far the most passion, fervent discussion, and enthusiasm from the public, takes place every year in the 123rd largest city in the U.S.? Do I hear giggling in the background? Well, smarty pants, I'm here to tell you that the global heavyweight champion of art exhibitions lives in beautiful downtown Grand Rapids, Michigan. Yep, I'm serious. This is another one of those beautiful philanthropy surprises. The story begins in 2009. Rick DeVos is the grandson of one of the founders of Amway, the very successful direct sale business. And Rick must have inherited some of his grandpa's entrepreneurial instincts because he announced that year that he was going to try to marry the creative energy of new art with the competitive fire of national science contests by creating a national art contest open to anyone who considered himself capable of creating art. And any organization in his home city of Grand Rapids that considered itself capable of turning itself into a gallery for a few weeks would be allowed to display a portion of the entries. Thanks to the generosity of his philanthropic family and other donors, this contest would award a half million dollars in prizes. DeVos suggested that this radically open art exhibition could become the biggest event in city history, a boost to the regional economy, and a milestone in national creative life. You will not be surprised to learn that much of the art establishment didn't like the idea. More giggling. Not only did they dislike the fact that anyone could enter and that anyone could turn her store or hotel or building lobby into a temporary art gallery, but get this, winners of those hundreds of thousands of dollars of prizes were going to be selected by the public in open voting. The hoi polloi were going to be allowed to separate the treasures from the trash. Opening day came five months later, and the scoffers were surprised. 1,262 artists from 41 states and 14 countries entered pieces in that first competition. And 159 Grand Rapids businesses or nonprofits or landlords offered their buildings to serve as temporary galleries. Even more amazing, the public turned out. I mean, poured out. In this city of 188,000 people, more than 200,000 individuals showed up to view the art. 334,000 passionate votes were made by cell phone or computer. 
By the first Sunday, many Grand Rapids restaurants had run out of food. By the next Sunday, there were no more hotel rooms. On the event's closing day, the line to see the winning piece, selected by popular vote, stretched down two full city blocks. I was in Grand Rapids this year for the 8th Art Prize exhibition, and I'm here to tell you it is an absolute phenomenon. Not only was the city packed with visitors wandering around with maps in one hand to find the pieces and cell phones in their other hand to vote for favorites, but they were talking and talking and talking about art. Sweet elderly couples arguing about the details of a piece. Groups of high school students excitedly comparing the merits of different entries. Businessmen munching on sandwiches during their lunchtime while peering at paintings and sculptures and electronic installations. People carefully poring over the descriptive notes and the maker biographies. Pieces of art not only jammed the City Art Museum and all the major hotels and the Design Institute and the big stores, but creative works were also wedged into coffee shops and elevator lobbies. The city police station was floor to ceiling with fascinating, crazy, colorful pictures and three-dimensional works. Special rope lines separated the art tourists from the people lined up to ask the cops about parking tickets or report a bike theft. The mix of art is fascinating. Yeah, I did see some rhino sculptures made out of yarn and Elmer's glue, and some chainsaw wood carving like the kind you can watch being made at a state fair while you eat your corn dog. But I also saw some breathtakingly original and clever things from completely unknown creators. Haunting masks of human faces made out of different colors of human hair. Delicate mobiles that looked like running horses when the breeze stirred them. And computer-generated art that mesmerized me. Samuel Johnson once said that if you're tired of London, you're tired of life. I kind of reacted that way to the art prize exhibition. It's a huge jumble of stuff, but if you can't find lots of things in their mix to interest you, you must be numb to the world. A few years ago, artprize.org, the nonprofit group set up by Rick DeVos to run this extravaganza, started offering prizes awarded by a jury of art professionals to supplement the prizes selected by public voting. Sometimes the public and the critics zero in on the same pieces. More often, the results from the two types of judging are quite different. Both sides carry $200,000 top prizes put up by donors. Interestingly, I see little difference in quality or power between most of the selections of the public and those of the professional experts. If anything, the experts are more predictable in their selections. Show signs of alienation in your artwork? and you'll get lots of sympathy from the expert jury. The public selections are much more various, and in some cases more interesting. There's little doubt that it is the democratic aspect and the people's ability to choose that explains the power of this remarkable art contest. At this point, almost half a million people pour into Grand Rapids every year during the two and a half weeks when this art is on display, and visitors absolutely buzz with excitement and opinions. The final results are unveiled at an event which fills the Civic Theater and is televised live on the local NBC affiliate. There is a sports championship level of public excitement surrounding each year's contest. And folks, we're talking about art here. Where else do you know of a place where everyday citizens get that interested in creativity and visual beauty? For a little taste of the popular buzz that this brilliant philanthropic creation stirs up among locals and visitors from across the nation, listen to this little clip from this year's event announcing picks made by the judges, which also is carried live on regional television. 
from 24 Hour News 8. This is the Art Prize Joy Awards shortlist. Live from the Art Prize Hub in downtown Grand Rapids. All right, it is the first big night of Art Prize 8. We are unveiling the entries in the running for the juried awards, including that $200,000 grand juried award. Good evening, everyone. Like I said, there is an athletic playoff or election night atmosphere to this event. When was the last time you heard your neighbors exclaiming about how beautifully the color pools up in somebody's painting? Art Prize moves people to do that. Let's get to these finalists right now. We've got, first off, Charted Memories by Karen Kroll at Calvin College. Talk about this one. The work immediately drew me in with the vibrancy of its color. It's made of uh, these in incredibly uh, patterned grids. So these are watercolor. And right. I actually thought that was really um, compelling that the artist used her materials and respected her materials, that these are not uh, oil on canvas, but they're watercolor on paper. And she really lets you see that in her work. So one of the first things you'll notice from across the room is the rough cut edge of the paper. You'll also notice the way that the pigment sort of pools or um, bleeds. You really get a sense of that water in the, in the material, and I appreciated that. It's pretty incredible what you can do with watercolors. I mean, this is amazing. Cool. Way cool. Trust me. I walked around the city for hours during Art Prize 2016, only scratched the surface of what was on display, and found every minute of it fascinating. This is one of those crazy, brilliant ideas that philanthropists bring to life because they're able to try new things, unproven things, things that no business or government agency could justify taking a risk on. Philanthropy often serves as a kind of venture capital, willing to test out dramatically new concepts. Art Prize is one of those charitable experiments that has paid off in a big way. And great job, as always, and what a story. By the way, we should just do an hour on the city of Grand Rapids, because what a story of that town. What a unique, unique town. This is Our American Stories, Sweet Charity, brought to us, as always, by the Philanthropy Roundtable. And if you, if you can or would care to, pick up the Almanac of American Philanthropy. It's packed with great stories just like this. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, where we tell great music stories, love stories, sports stories, anything and everything that stirs the soul. Take a listen to our Alexander Hamilton piece we did the other day with Ron Chernow. It's superb, and we celebrated his death. He had been shot in a duel by Aaron Burr in Weehawken, New Jersey, on the 11th of July, and died on the 12th in Greenwich Village in a friend's home. Astounding life that now more and more people are learning about because of a remarkable play on Broadway, which will soon be coming to a town near you, hopefully, if you're lucky enough. And one of the principles that our country was founded on, and that's why I talked a little about one of our founders, literally, was that the government can't seize your property without probable cause and due process. Indeed, it was the writs of assistance by the British colony that infuriated the colonists. They, they felt they could come into our, our homes, 
without, without cause. And that's the Fourth Amendment to the Constitution. There it is in black and white. But it turns out that local governments have been seizing innocent folks' property and then burying them under confusing legal paperwork, so much so that most people just give up on trying to get their stuff back. And the car or house or money the police seize just goes to pad some agency's bottom line. It's really repugnant. And I don't care what side of the political aisle you're on. We do not do a political show, as you know by now. We're joined today by Judy Weiss and Austin Berg to take a deeper look at this thing called civil asset forfeiture. Judy's a brave woman who fought back when the local sheriffs took something that was absolutely vital to her and in the end to all of us. And Austin is from the Illinois Policy Institute, Illinois' premier think tank. And I'd like to thank both of you for joining us. Thank you. You bet. Judy, your grandson and you share a car. Tell us how him driving to and from work led to the police seizing what may be the single most important asset Americans have, and that's their transportation. Well, at the time that I was letting him use my car to go back and forth to work was because his car had broke down and I was trying to help him. I had a broken arm, so I couldn't really drive. And the night before he went to work to use my car, uh, I got up at 10.30 and he was not there and the keys to the car were gone. His driver's license were laying on the table because I had brought them in from the car the night before after I locked it up. I actually checked to see that it was locked. And that that was on, uh, I believe, August 31st. Um, I had a phone call at 1.30 a.m. from a police officer that told me that he was driving on a suspended license and my car was being towed. So that afternoon, or actually probably mid-morning, I called the towing place and asked what I had to do to get my car. And, matter of fact, I asked the police officer, because it was like four blocks away from where I lived, where they were, could I come and get my car? And he said, no, it's being put on tow truck. So then I waited and called the tow place and asked them, can I, what do I have to do to get my car? And he said, it's being seized. And I said, what? And he said, you'll have to call the sheriff's department. Therefore, I went ahead and called the sheriff's department, and they told me that I couldn't have my car, that it was going to be seized because he was driving, then they said, a revoked driver's license. Well, he, his license were suspended because he hadn't went in and paid his fine for driving or something. I'm not real sure about all that because there's been so many stories put out about it that nobody really knows right. the truth. And so um, I just thought, there's no way. I'm making payments on this car. I am an elderly person. I live on less less than $750 a month. I'm, I'm making payments. I'm not letting my car go. So I therefore kept trying to call. There was an investigator involved and a detective. And they told me that I would have to make an appointment to meet a special person down there 
to get anything out of my car, not to get my car, but to get anything. Therefore, I call and try to make an appointment to meet somebody, and they will not return my phone calls. They will not pick up the phone. I leave message after message after message. Finally, a, a little angel wrote an article in the newspaper, Rachel, and all of a sudden I'm getting so many phone calls and letters in the mail from attorneys that want to help me pro bono. I was just floored. I, I couldn't believe that there was that many people out there that really cared that somebody was losing something that they didn't commit a crime over. So I went with Larry Vandersnick. It wasn't long after that. It took a week, and he had my car back. But my car was gone from me for almost six months. I was paying payments and car insurance, and I was just devastated. I had no way to do anything. I was supposed to be going to therapy for my arm. I only got to go to that twice. My arm is still not like it should be. And Larry went, Mr. Vandersnick, went and talked to the state's attorney. Oh, actually, I have to go back a little bit. I went to court. They sent me a paper to go to court. And when I went to court, I had papers that I had to fill out from the courthouse. And the judge told me that my papers were not filled out right. And this is before I had talked to an attorney. And he told me that I he didn't have to tell me what I needed to do, but he told me that I had to either deny or say yes to some of these questions and that I had to have it notarized, which nobody told me that at the courthouse when I went up there. The papers were given to him, and... I I didn't know what to do then. That's when the article came out, because Rachel came to court and listened to the whole thing. She wrote a really good article. And that's when I started getting phone calls from legal people that wanted to help me, which just touched my heart. I, you just can't. It, it is right now. I just can't even believe it. Well, you know, and Judy, it, it touches my heart, too. But at the same time, what infuriates, I think, everyone listening is that but for that lovely lady writing that article, the lawyers wouldn't have known your problem and they wouldn't have called you. And you would have kept getting the runaround for who knows how many more months until maybe one day you would have just said, the heck with it. I quit. I know that. I quit. And by the way, we all know this experience with government anyway. Where the, no, there's no accountability, there's no responsibility. But here, your son's uh, driving on a suspended license list. How that car is not, not returned to you? Under what legal theorem the state thinks it can take this property? Well, when we come back, Judy, we're going to be joined by Austin Berg, who's going to explain to our audience, or try to, how this crazy, crazy mentality of our nation's law enforcement community can think somehow that our property is theirs. And when we come back, we'll dig into this story, this remarkable story that's developing as a revenue base, it turns out, for so many of our state, local, and county, and even federal law enforcement agencies. And 
This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories, Civil Asset Forfeiture. It's coming to a town near you if it already isn't there. More after these messages. This is Our American Stories. You're listening to Chris Stapleton's Outlaw State of Mind. And it's not so good when your own government acts like an outlaw and just takes your property. And that's essentially what's happening here with some of these civil asset forfeiture statutes being enforced around the country. It's turning into a revenue mechanism. We just heard Judy Weiss's story about what happened to her precious car and living on a limited income, her grandson gets busted on some driving offense and driving without a license or driving on the suspended list, whatever. Anybody who has a kid has to experience this kind of nonsense. You get your car back and then you punish your kid. You don't get punished, too, by getting your car stolen from your government. And joining us to talk about this trend, the disturbing trend in this country, in Illinois and other places, Austin Berg joins us from the Illinois Policy Institute. Austin, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me on, Lee. Hey, talk, tell us about where this comes from, because it actually, the forfeiture statutes actually come from a decent place. When drug dealers are doing what they do, and they're hiding their money in various spaces, what we want to do is grab those assets so they can't flee the country. And so I think there was, a, in the beginning, a, a reasonable connection to this law. Am I wrong about that, Austin? No, like a lot of government regulations, you know, they come from a place of uh, good intentions, but good intentions do not good laws make. Right. So in, in a sense, civil asset forfeiture is a fancy term, but it really means a very simple thing. And it's that, as you said, police can seize your property without convicting you of a crime. And you're right to say that these laws sort of came up in the 1980s, and it was to whack mob bosses and drug kingpins and gang leaders um, to really hit them where it hurts. But now you see these situations where this is invoked, where, take Judy's case, her grandson goes to jail for for 10 days, and she doesn't see her car for almost six months. Um, it's It's been clearly uh, perverted to serve a different purpose. Indeed. And w- what are they hoping here in that six months? Well, first of all, there may be revenue from parking that uh, vehicle for six months, and that's probably a revenue split with the towing company because you got a contract with them. So that's one. And two, are they hoping one day that people give up and then they can just pop that car in one of those really great police auctions that I always read about that really sicken me because I know I'm buying some other citizen's car in a discount. I hate seeing those police auctions. They just, they, they repulse me. Mm. Yeah, so under Illinois law, actually, it can take up to 
187 days to have a hearing on a civil asset forfeiture case. So when a lot of times you have people waiting uh, for months in anguish, waiting for their property back, and, and a lot of times, in Judy's case, she was lucky she got pro bono legal help. But so many people uh, can't afford that, uh, and they just leave their property to the police. And in Illinois, as is the case in a lot of other states, uh, they end up getting a cut of that money, um, of the proceeds from the sales of, of, of that property. And so much of law enforcement, as we're learning now, and so much of the federal agencies, Austin, and this is something we'll talk to you about down the road, it's about the revenue. I mean, they actually brag about budget projections and how much they raised from things like these. Absolutely. Um, And there's a lot of problems with this sort of policing for profit model, um, as a lot of people say. And in Illinois, you've seen in the last two years, $72 million dollars in seized property from from asset forfeiture. Now, the problem in Illinois is we are a notoriously uh, non-transparent state, so we don't know which of those, uh, how much of that money comes from civil asset forfeiture, where you don't have to be charged for a crime with a crime, and criminal asset forfeiture, where after you're charged with a crime, they can take your property. Um, Now, obviously, that's the clear way to go. With With civil asset forfeiture, you have this whole notion of being innocent until proven guilty turned on its head. Right. Your property is presumed guilty, and you must prove its innocence. Right. And that's very hard for a lot of people, uh, like Judy, for instance. Yeah, and I, you know, I remember uh, this happening to a friend of mine who had purchased something with cash, and he didn't have the receipts. He had bought it on a trade, and there was a seizure in an in a, uh, apartment building where he lived in New York, and he just, he never got his property back. He just, he couldn't prove it was his. And he had to prove it was his, even though it was his. And, you know, right. that, that, is, that is a big deal. I wanted to read something that, that we learned recently. 26 states, Austin, allow for 100% of the profit from these forfeitures to go to the police department. And another 16 allow for at least 50% of the profit to go to the police department. So some take it all and some are on a rev share. Pretty interesting work if you can get it. Exactly. And it's really not a good use of law enforcement resources to be going after these types of cases. So you saw in Illinois, actually, a really, really odd case that's still going on right now where a state's attorney downstate, a state's attorney, a prosecutor, uh, created his own law enforcement agency, basically for the sole purpose of standing out, uh, next to the highway, pulling people over and seizing cash in suspicion uh, of drug charges. And that money goes to new squad cars. That money goes to trips to fancy conferences. That money goes to a scholarship in the state's attorney's name. Uh, this is clearly not, not a good use of law enforcement resources, and it's a total – the incentives are just totally backwards and lead to really uh, disturbing cases like Judy's. And on the policy side, Austin, where, where are we in terms of getting state legislatures – and and local uh, legislators to do something about this. I mean, is the public outcry enough, or are these such isolated cases that it's hard to ban these people altogether? And I also think, Austin, there's a piece of somebody going, oh, come on, you had to do something wrong. I mean, why, is your, why did the cops right. take your stuff? I mean, you know, in the end, the American people tend to presume you're guilty once, once you're tied up with law enforcement anyway. That's true, and that's why it's really important that people such as Judy uh, share their stories, where they truly 
were completely innocent and were taking, taken advantage of by a broken system. And now this is actually an area, reforming this is an area where I'm, I'm fairly optimistic about. You've seen uh, recently Nevada, New Mexico, Michigan, Maryland, all passing to some degree. Some have abolished uh, civil asset forfeiture altogether. Some have seriously cut back on cases where it's allowed to be used. Um, and it's a pretty bipartisan issue, as you said at the top of the show. This is left or right. This this seems wrong to to a lot of people instinctually. Well, the left, Austin, right, the people right on the left, Austin, the civil liberties crowds, the ACLU, have got to be with, with you on this, even though you're, I would say, on the libertarian to right side in terms of freedom and property rights. Where's the ACLU yes. on something like this? Well, I will tell you that the the Illinois ACLU is actually a group that got us in touch with Judy, and I'm very proud of the work that they have done recently um, in bringing this issue to light. And our group, which is uh, sort of a more libertarian, free market-leaning group, can really find some common ground with groups like the ACLU on this because it is a personal freedom issue. Yeah, and it's a Fourth Amendment issue. And, you know, I I love it when everybody frames the Second Amendment. Oh, the Second Amendment's so dangerous. People have guns, they could die. Hey, you know what else is dangerous? Making cops have a warrant before they do what they do. But you know what? The only thing more dangerous than giving defendants some freedoms is giving the cops total access to our houses without warrants. And so our founders thought that was so important that they, 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 they put it into, they enshrined it into one of our fundamental liberties, Austin. I think it's a fundamental tenet of our justice system that you are innocent until proven guilty. And, and this, as I said before, is a total inversion of that. And it really needs to stop. Let me share two or three more things. Then I'm going to close out where we started with Judy. Uh, I have a little note here that says that criminologist John Worrell surveyed 770 police managers and found that 40 percent said that, quote, civil asset forfeiture is necessary as a budget supplement. It's disgraceful, Austin. It's just, they're even admitting it. It's got yeah, to sicken them, too. At a certain level, real law enforcement who went out to do good now have to sit around and hold up and hijack law-abiding citizens like Judy and take their cars. It's got to sicken good cops, too, Austin. Exactly. And this, uh, this policing for profit model uh, is, is really, really bad. I'm telling you, the incentives are terrible. And you see, even if you talk to, I, I spoke to a few different uh, law enforcement officers in Illinois, and they say this gives all agencies a really bad name. It sort of dampens the legitimacy of law enforcement in a certain area because why? Why did you take my property? I'm an innocent person. Now I'm not going to call the cops next time I see something bad happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other thing is that in Illinois, you see not only now are our law enforcement agencies dependent on this money, but the interests at play are trying to expand the people who are dependent on that. So there's actually a bill on the on the governor's desk right now in Illinois that would let. Uh, law enforcement agencies use that money toward school programs. Oh. And as soon as you do that, once schools are on the dole, it's going to be very difficult. The more people you have dependent on that money, the more difficult it's going to be to reform the system. Yeah, you're taking money away from the children. That's what's happening. Right. Judy, 30 seconds or less. What do you have to say to the folks out there? Uh, you're talking to a, 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 somebody in the state legislature right now. Just give them a 30-second piece of your mind. Well, I'll tell you, my heart really goes out to people that have had way more taken from them and not got it back. There's so many grandparents that have raised grandkids that have been lost their homes. That's that's tragic. That's just unbelievable. And and it does. If I can help in any way 
for somebody to get this law changed, that's why I'm on here. That's why I'm talking. Well, Judy, thank you for doing that. And Austin, thank you for doing all that you do. And let's keep following this story down the line. And ultimately, let's maybe pick on a few state legislatures this fall and maybe even a few state legislators and see what we can do about it. Amen. That's right. You bet. Thank you, ma'am. And this is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories, Civil Asset Forfeiture, a story we're going to continue to follow here on Our American Stories. This is a Thanksgiving song. I hope you enjoy it. Turkey lurkey do and turkey lurkey dap. I eat that turkey, then I take a nap. Thanksgiving is a special night. Thanksgiving is the only American holiday that has actually remained relatively innocent. It's not something that we have been able to commercialize. But there's something going on here more than feasting, family, and football. And I'm not talking about the time you constructed a belt-buckled paper hat. What is it about these pilgrims? Why do we pay so much attention to these immigrants to the New World? They were always viewed as irrelevant, weird, and different. They didn't start a college. The Massachusetts colony did. That college is called Harvard. The Pilgrims never became rich or influential. In fact, William Bradford, the governor of Plymouth Plantation, and the man who documents the founding of the Plymouth Colony, thinks at the end of his life that everything the Pilgrims had done had been a failure. So what is it about their experience that makes them so worthy of attention? That I may truly unfold the story of Plymouth Plantation, I must begin at the very root. As with many immigrants, their story begins thousands of miles away. It is told through the writings of one man who lived it. The year is 1607. The place, Scrooby Manor, in North Nottinghamshire, England. Under the flag of religion. Then said the Lord. I shall endeavor to manifest this history in a plain style with singular regard unto the simple truth in all things. At least as near to the truth as my slender judgment can attain. That was William Bradford. His record of everything that happens on their voyage and arrival to the New World is our best source of information. He keeps detailed records because he believes that what they are doing is tremendously important. Bradford's writing is later published as Of Plymouth Plantation, but it is not published until some 230 years later, in the 1850s. Lonely and intelligent, in a world that feels increasingly precarious and adrift to him, the 12-year-old Bradford seeks solace in the Bible. 
Bradford writes that reading the scriptures makes a great impression upon him, and the more he reads, the more troubled he becomes at the gulf between the world he sees around him and the simplicity and purity of the gospel. Oh, Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. He had this profound sense as a 12-year-old that the congregation he was a part of was corrupt, that the church was moving them in a direction that was not right, that they prayed to the depraved beliefs of mortal men that were moving them away from God. And so this was a deep conviction. And I think there you have the beginnings of a very complex, inward-looking person who was improbably preparing for the ultimate journey. In 1607, Bradford is an orphan living on his uncle's farm, but his passion is his faith. And without a prince, two men become his mentors. This famous and worthy man, John Robinson, was our pastor for many years. And without teraphim. Mr. Brewster, a reverend man like a father to me, became an elder of our church. Love a woman beloved of her. These two men guided us in all things. It is they who labored in this secret church to have the right worship of God and discipline of Christ according to the simplicity of the gospel. Yet others persisted to disturb the peace of our poor persecuted church. Return and seek the Lord their God. One wouldn't know it by looking at them, but these worshippers are breaking the law. The official state religion is the Anglican Church of England. King Henry VIII established it 70 years earlier in 1534. He placed himself at the head of the church, replacing the Catholic Pope in Rome. English Protestants were overjoyed. They saw England joining the great Protestant Reformation of Martin Luther and the overthrow of the old Catholic Church. Here's Dermot McCulloch, professor of church history at Oxford University. The old church had power because it said that it could help people to get to heaven by saying masses for their soul. Luther and the Protestants said that wasn't so. God had all the power, we have none. And by saying that, they said that the old church had no power. That is what split the Western world apart in the 16th century. But real change in the Church of England is slow to come. Many of the pilgrim separatists are fined or go to jail for not attending the Church of England and for starting their own separate congregation that secretly meets in people's homes. In the early 17th century, the Church of England still had remnants of the past like stained glass. The church still had bishops and priests and deacons with cathedrals, choirs. In other words, it looked rather more like the old church and a lot of Protestants did not like that one little bit. These pilgrim separatists feel the King's Church can never be purified. They must separate from it completely. That's the difference between a Puritan and a separatist. Puritans simply wanted to change it, make it better. Separatists make another big leap of the imagination. They say you shouldn't have a Church of England. You shouldn't have a church which is connected with the civil power. And in the 16th century, that's a very big deal. Because of the persecutions from the Church of England, the pilgrims decide to run away, to leave England in mass to leave behind everything that they have known 
because their Christian conscience demands it. They arrive in the very libertarian seaport city of Amsterdam, Holland, which is the most exciting, prosperous, cosmopolitan city in the whole world, known for its religious toleration. You can do anything you want there, and the government won't interfere with you. Amsterdam's reputation in the early 1600s is about the same as it is today. A city famous for its prostitution and 500-plus alehouses. So when the pious pilgrims arrive in Sin City, it wasn't according to their expectations. Within a year, they decide to move again, 22 miles south, to the much smaller city university town of Leiden. Leiden is a much better fit, but shortly after arriving, another idea begins to generate a great deal of enthusiasm from some of the more daring leaders of this tiny little group. They feel called to move again, but where? Most are content with their labors here. We labor only as God wishes. Yet some prefer and choose the prisons in England rather than liberty in Holland with these afflictions. Faith, if some better and easier place could be found, it could draw many and take away these discouragements. Where would we go? Where could we go? What's of America? There are vast and unpeopled countries in America which are fruitful and fit for habitation. I have not heard that America is unpeopled. There are no civil men there, but only savages who meet. This is an extraordinarily audacious uh, proposition because up until this time, uh, there was only one existing supposedly successful English settlement, Jamestown, and that was hardly a success. Uh, people were dying at a frightening rate every year. The pilgrims decide to make their home in the new world where they can pursue their godly path without interference and without compromise. But how do these poor pilgrims get the money they need in order to finance the trip? They apply to investors who might like the idea of exploiting a bunch of religious fanatics like themselves. A deal was made. They use a big part of their very limited resources in order to purchase the aging vessel called the Speedwell. But the Speedwell will fail to live up to its name. She was called the Speedwell. And this was intended to be a vessel that would provide them with a way to explore the coast, search for furs, and if the worst should happen, it would provide them with a, a method of escape uh, from the New World. About 55 pilgrim separatists leave Holland on the Speedwell for England. With a prosperous wind, we came in short time to Southampton. There we made port and found the bigger ship come from London lying ready, with all the rest of our company. The pilgrims see for the first time another ship loaded with supplies, waiting to join them for the trip across the Atlantic Ocean. This supply ship is called the Mayflower. The Mayflower was a merchant vessel, a cargo ship. She was not designed to carry passengers. She's about 180 tons, which means you could fit 180 casks of wine, tons of wine in its hold. She was beak-bowed, square-rigged, with high castle-like structures fore and aft. She was a very reliable ship, standard transportation of the early 17th century. The recent arrivals from Leiden are reunited with William Brewster and two fellow separatists, John Carver and Robert Cushman, who have been hard at work setting up the voyage. On August 5th, 
1620, as they prepare to depart, the pilgrims say their farewells, which are deeply emotional. Edward Winslow, who was one of the chief men going along on the voyage, describes the scene as follows. We refreshed ourselves after our tears with the singing of songs, making joyful melody in our hearts as well as with the voice. And indeed, it was the sweetest melody that ever mine ears have heard. And then with mutual embraces and tears, they took their leaves, one of the other, which proved to be the last leave to many of them. After three years of planning and preparation, two ships, the Speedwell and the Mayflower, are finally on their way to America on what will prove to be the most historic voyage in human history. They weren't the people that you would expect to be founding a new colony. They weren't soldiers, they were not emissaries of a foreign government, they were not particularly well provided with supplies. At least half of them were separatists, that is to say radical Protestants, who were religious exiles, who had been living in Leiden, the Dutch Republic. They weren't the people you would automatically expect to be founding a new outpost of the British Empire. The Mayflower is under the command of Master Christopher Jones. He isn't a religious man, but he is a remarkably decent one. He is so moved by the pilgrim's devotion and faith that he offers to bunk with his petty officers and gives his cabin to the women and small children. He and his ship have been hired to take the pilgrim's provisions to America and then return to England. The two ships travel west for seven days, and then to their shock and dismay, the Speedwell begins to wallow and take on water. Not soon after the Speedwell has trouble, the master of the Speedwell noted that um, she was taking on more water than they could handle. Here's how passenger William Bradford chronicles this moment. We had not gone far, but Mr. Reynolds, the master of the lesser ship, complained that he had found his ship so leaky as he durst not put further to sea till she was mended. Because of the leaky speedwell, the ships do not turn back once, but two times. Can you imagine the miles that they retrace their steps all the way back to England? The pilgrims lose an entire month while attempts are made and valuable food provisions are sold in order to repair the Speedwell. It's early September. This is not the time you want to sail to America. Westerly gales are screaming across the Atlantic. They'd be right in your teeth if you head out. William Bradford writes that some 20 passengers decide the voyage is not a very good idea and get off the ship for good. He also writes, it was judged that the Speedwell would not prove sufficient for the voyage, upon which it was resolved to dismiss her and proceed with the Mayflower alone. On September 6, 1620, fearfully late in the season, everyone got on the Mayflower, left Plymouth Harbor, and set out on her own across the Atlantic. Because of the Speedwell having to stay behind, there are many more people on Mayflower than they anticipated carrying initially. There were ultimately 102 passengers on, on Mayflower on a relatively small ship. It's a dark, dank, airless space, less than five feet high. So you, you, know, you were hunched as you walked up and down. There were some animals down there, goats and pigs and chickens and provisions. 
was more like a cave, I think, than a place fit for human habitation. Along with 102 passengers on the Mayflower was between 25 and 35 crewmen on board. being now compact together in one ship. We put to sea again with a prosperous wind, which was some encouragement unto us. The rough and tumble crew do not take their cues from their kind captain. Bradford writes, Yet, according to the usual manner, many were afflicted with seasickness. Goddamn pie! What a lot of dribbling cock queens! A bloody psalm singing, God-fearing, puke-stocking bean farmer going to America. <laughs> See that quail, little, little kicksy-wixies. One of the seamen of a lusty, able body, which made him the more haughty. He would always be condemning the poor people in their sickness and cursing us daily with grievous execrations. <laughs> Into the bucket, girl! Worse than the The haughty seaman tells the sick pilgrims how much he looks forward to the day he could sew them up in shrouds and feed them to the fishes. There's no sanitation facilities. If you are seasick, which many are, and have to vomit, if you have to perform your other bodily functions, you're doing it in a slop bucket and you're trying to hit the target on a moving deck. And a lot of people probably miss, so that it's not surprising that people comment on the stench below decks. Shipboard fare in the 17th century was pretty much what shipboard fare would be for centuries to come, and that is miserable. You've got beef in barrels, heavily salted, to preserve it. One daily ration of the ship's diet would give a sailor or a passenger on a ship like Mayflower over 6,000 milligrams of salt in the day. Sodium intake at that level causes dehydration and hypothermia, as well as having long-term effects like high blood pressure. The big problem in the 17th century was drinking water. The drinking water in, in England was not reliable, so people relied on beer primarily. And uh, children drank it, everyone drank it. And going to sea, the ordinary ration was one gallon of beer per day per person, which uh, comes out to you know, rather a lot of beer. The Mayflower is now halfway across the Atlantic and the relentless teasing of the pilgrims is about to end for good. Of the haughty sailor who so figged us with his daily curses, it pleased God to smite this young man with a grievous disease, and so was himself the first that was thrown overboard. Thus, his curses light on his own head, and it was an astonishment to all his fellows, for they noted it to be the just hand of God upon him. The death of a sailor is answered by the arrival of a new passenger. Only one other passenger dies on the voyage. William Button, a servant, ignores the urgings of Captain Jones to drink his daily portion of lemon juice in order to prevent scurvy. And this disobedience costs him his life. Then, on November 9, 1620, 
After more than two months at sea, a crew member spies a line of high bluffs gleaming far off in the early dawn light and shouts out excitedly to Captain Jones. But their jubilation quickly dims as word races through the ship that they made landfall far north of their intended Manhattan Island destination. Muskets first. Keep them dry. On Friday, December 16th, 1620, the Mayflower with its cargo of sickened and sea-weary passengers and crew anchors a mile offshore. Everything was wrong. I mean, they had to reach the shore by wading through ice-cold water to the shoreline. And Bradford says, at one point, The weather was very cold, and the spray of the sea lighting on our coats froze so hard we were as if we had been glazed. And they caught cold and they died. In the harsh winter ahead, half of them die. A fire during a snowstorm burns up much of their precious winter clothing, but the fire fails to reach the barrels of gunpowder. In January and February, sometimes two and three died in a day. Bradford calls it the heart of winter. It's just a very grim time. The biggest toll, the most painful toll, was by March, 13 of the 18 wives die. They die keeping their children alive. All seven daughters live, and 10 of the 13 sons live. Somehow they keep their hopes up by coming up every Sunday to listen to the preaching of William Brewster, who assures them that this is all God's will. Finally, by the middle of March, there's a turning point. It happens on a Friday. It's fair, and the sky is blue. They're still weak, they are still fearful when they spot a tall, muscular Indian wearing only a loincloth and carrying a bow break cover from the line of trees among their huts and walk boldly into their camp. They shout out, Indian coming! Indian coming! Indian coming! Indian coming! With rifle in hand, they approach with incredible caution. But as he draws within range, the Indian shouts out in perfect English, Welcome! The pilgrims responded in kind, and then, in a fateful interchange, the next word from the Indian is, Have you got any beer? The pilgrims are caught flat-footed. They don't have any beer. They respond, Our beer is gone. Would you like some brandy? And the answer, to no one's surprise, is a wholehearted yes. As they drink the brandy, they discover that this particular Indian, whose name is Samoset, developed his English skills and his taste for beer by spending time with English fishermen who tried to colonize on the New England coast. What Samoset said that was particularly interesting is that there was a Christian Indian by the name of Squanto who spoke perfect English and was living nearby. Squanto became a Christian and spoke English because he was captured and made a slave for nine years in England before he was able to buy his freedom and return home on a ship captained by John Smith. Yes, the John Smith of Pocahontas. As Smith's ship departed, Squanto was almost immediately captured for a second time and sent to the much crueler Spain. Then. Just as he was about to be sent to North Africa, 
where he would have been a slave for the rest of his undoubtedly short life. Some Catholic friars were able to buy and rescue a few of the Indian slaves, including Squanto. So Squanto lives with the friars in a monastery, and he becomes a Christian. He also learns to speak perfect English and perfect Spanish, and learns to pray every day, and becomes quite devout. With the help of these friars, who had befriended him and became quite impressed by his fine mind and his remarkable character, he gets enough money to buy his way back for the second time. Two months before the pilgrims arrive to the Pawtuxet village in what is today Massachusetts, Squanto finds his village absolutely deserted. Everyone from his tribe has died from a series of plagues that swept across New England. Once Squanto meets the pilgrims, he will change everything. As William Bradford declares in his own recollections, as many as were able began to plant their corn, in which service Squanto stood us in great stead, shown us the manner how to set it. Also, he told us unless we got fish and set it with the seed, the corn would come to nothing. The fish helps the earth. It's if we're feeding our northern He was our interpreter and was a special instrument sent of God for our good. Squanto never leaves the pilgrims until the day he dies. On October of 1621, Bradford writes about the preparations for what we now know as the first Thanksgiving. Thus our peace and acquaintance was pretty well established with the natives about us. We began now to gather in the small harvest we had and to fit up our houses and dwellings against winter, being all well recovered in health and strength. We had all things in good plenty, for some were exercised in fishing, about cod and bass and other fish of which every family had their portion. There was a great store of wild turkeys, of which we took many. Our harvest being gotten in, our governor sent men on fowling, so we might, after a more special manner, rejoice together. They've made peace with the Indians, they had a good harvest, so they decided to have something that was familiar to them back in England, a kind of harvest feast. It was like God had sent them a strong message, okay, you're on the right path you've actually made it through the first real test, which is surviving your year and having enough to continue. Squanto's close friend and Indian chief Massasoit arrives with 90 of his braves who are carrying a bunch of dressed deer. The table is set and the first Thanksgiving prayer is said. Oh Lord, hear us Lord. How few, weak, and raw were we at our first beginning in this howling wilderness, in the midst of strangers. And yet, God, thou hast wrought this peace for us. Thou hast brought us these allies. Amen. 
the real heroes on this first Thanksgiving are the last four surviving pilgrim women who prepare the feast for the 140 attendees. Not surprisingly, these first Thanksgiving friends spend their post-meal time partaking in activities that are not too far from the spirit in which we partake in them today. They might have been racing, they might have been wrestling, they might have been competing with bow and arrow. I bet they were drinking together. It's a rowdy affair, it's a male-dominated affair more than anything else. put on, to the best of their ability, a display of their weapons and their martial organization. So both sides are showing off their strength. Amongst other recreations, we exercised our arms. Massazoid's men went out and killed five deer, which they brought to the plantation and bestowed on our governor, upon the captain and others. One thing that's very important is that deer were a high-status food. They were very carefully bestowing these as marks of respect. For three days we entertained and feasted. Three days of celebrating. In Native society, that's typical. As a matter of fact, that's probably short. Did the Wampanoags eat the English out of house and home during these three days? Quite possibly. But the English are free to come and visit the villages of their native allies and receive similar hospitality. That's how kin treat one another. That's what the Wampanoags expect by virtue of this alliance. That's the point of the whole exercise. William Bradford and Massasoit will remain friends and allies for as long as they live despite increasing tensions from the arrival of thousands more Europeans into the Cape Cod territory. Bradford, though uncertain of the colony he founded, was certain about the final destination of his pilgrimage. Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Sarah. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, and being persuaded of them, and embracing them, and confessing that they were both strangers and pilgrims on the earth. But they desired a better country. That is a heavenly one. Wherefore God was not ashamed to be called their God. And he hath prepared for them a city. The pilgrims could never have dreamed of how much their quest for a godly republic would transform the world they were sailing towards, the searchers themselves, and the nation that would rise up long after they were gone, consecrated to their memory. We love the story of Thanksgiving because it's about alliance and abundance and envisioning a future where Native Americans and colonial Americans can come together and celebrate the providences of a single God. 
but part of the reason that they were grateful was that they had been in such misery, that they had lost so many people on both sides. So in some way, that day of Thanksgiving is also coming out of mourning. It's also coming out of grief. And this abundance that is a relief from that loss. But we don't think about the loss. We think about the abundance. Oh, there's no place like home for the holidays. And that abundance is found in family, in going home for the holidays. If there is such a thing as a typical American Thanksgiving, the Spikiotich family dinner might just qualify. Every year, several generations come together over a boisterous, chaotic ritual no one wants to miss. Do we have gravy? Yeah. It's truly an American holiday to me. I mean, this is our holiday. Nobody else has it like we do. The people who are here come together and we all understand what it is that we're being thankful for. This is our American holiday. From Atlantic to Pacific. Today in our society where there are no clear answers, we look back at a time and a holiday such as Thanksgiving that once had clear answers. This is very simple. The pilgrims stood for piety, they stood for patriotism. They knew where they stood. We don't. So we look back and we see Thanksgiving as a time where everybody is in a golden afternoon sitting together around the Thanksgiving table and the families are secure and the ideals are secure and there's football on the television, everything's wonderful. And it just fits very well. Thanksgiving retains a lot of meaning for Americans today. I think that people are conscious of that. The fact that they have food on the table, the fact that they can gather together, that has meaning to them and just enjoying a good time with your friends around a table and having a wonderful meal. Those are our true pleasures in life and shouldn't be underestimated. Thanksgiving makes us pause and say, we're lucky we have this. What started as a makeshift meal in a tiny New England village has today become a national celebration of feasting and family togetherness. Thanksgiving may not be the very religious day it once was, but the last Thursday in November is still clearly a sacred date on America's national calendar. For the holidays you can't beat home, sweetheart.